0: Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Sebastian de Castel, author of the Coat series, which is my one of my favorite series involving swords of all time um uh, you just have to read it i'll put the links in the show notes i will of course discuss the books in the episode um, but also the spell slinger series which is sort of like a wild west with magic um and what they have in common is there's an awful lot of violence in both these series and it always always works really really well which is the main reason why I reached out to Sebastian to get him on the show, because getting good violence into a book is super hard. So without further ado, Sebastian, welcome to the
1: show. Thanks so much for having me. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You pronounced it excellently. I'm oh, honestly not sure how to pronounce it anymore because it's technically <laughs> a French name, but, but uh, my family's predominantly English. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't think there is a correct way to pronounce my name anymore. <laughs> so people will sometimes ask me. Is they're very concerned, you know? Is it Sebastian de Castel, de Castel, de Castel? Um, and I sort of think they're all good. It's, just, it's like having it's like being reborn every time someone introduces me. <laughs> okay. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, right now, which is okay. a, a pretty decent place to spend the pandemic. Uh, I for those can imagine.
0: Yeah I I've visited Vancouver several times and it is a lovely city.
1: It is. We were we were really lucky. Um we have a we have a, a an interesting mixture especially in terms of something like a pandemic where um we have pretty nice weather. People here tend to be sort of outdoorsy generally, so um that can kind of help limit spread a little bit, but it also means that people don't go quite as uh, uh, stir crazy. Uh, or get quite as much cabin fever being sort of from being trapped inside, we have a an amazing provincial health officer who's a really smart smart scientist and understands governance really well and a population that tends to be um, i won 't say servile but're're we're, we're, we're not as prone to going you know I refuse to wear a mask now that now that I know there's a pandemic, I want to run around and breathe on everyone. So we've we've actually had, uh, as these things go, a reasonably mild um, uh, experience with the pandemic. Which isn't to say that it hasn't been tragic for loads of people, but um, but it hasn't been so bad.
0: Yeah. Well, and yeah, I've I've been to Vancouver in February, and it's not nearly as cold as you would expect Canada to be in February. Um, But I think I think we just have made the biggest problem in Vancouver slightly worse. Now that
1: you've told everyone how lovely it is, house prices are only going to go further up. Oh, house prices are, are absolutely ridiculous here. It's uh, It makes no sense at all. Um, and uh, we keep constantly expecting this bubble to burst, and it never seems to burst. Uh, and I think it's because um, when people talk about housing markets... Now there's a topic for a sword show. Let's get let's get deep <laughs> into housing markets, guy. Let's, let's let's talk mortgages. We're going to talk mortgages. We're going to talk you know balloon Sorry. payments. Um, no, but uh, people will constantly sort of glibly say, "Well, it's a it's a it's a you know it's a it's an overheated market and it's going to burst." But the fundamentals don't alter, and the fundamentals are of a quite cosmopolitan city near the mountains and the ocean with a very temperate climate and pretty reasonable governance and relatively low for, for the, for a city this size, relatively low amounts of violence and things like that. Um, so it's just always going to be that way that people keep kind of coming here, um, and wanting to buy houses here. My wife and I are very lucky because we bought our, our house, um, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, okay. And so we got it when the prices were actually low and You know, every time we keep thinking, like, look how well we did on this house. You know, the the value of the house has gone up six times. We could, um, but if we were to sell it, we would never be able to afford any other house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's fine. You you could sell it and and move somewhere like I don't know, maybe Detroit,
1: where the housing market has not done so well. Sure, everybody wants to live in Detroit now. (laughs) Actually, Detroit's an amazing city. It's it's really sad. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful it's going to turn I mean, Detroit is, is actually a great
0: place. I've, I've been there several times and it has it has its dodgy areas and it's had a, a, a couple of decades or so of really, really bad luck. Um, but, again, the, the fundamentals, if we could just get some industry going there, it would be a great place. Yeah. So, yeah. so any, anyone listening here from Detroit, I, we are entirely on your side.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Detroit Rock City. This is a great rock and roller came out of there. Exactly,
0: exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay, now I think we probably better get a little bit more on topic. Uh, So, it's pretty obvious from reading your books that you do have some fencing experience, um, and the listeners can't see this, but um, behind Sebastian's shoulder there is not only several shelves of his books, beautifully arranged cover out, so you can see his series. Um, but also uh, two swords and a pistol So actually three swords There's another sword over the door Okay, so what's your background with the swords? Uh,
1: so I used to fence uh, epee fencing uh, mm-hmm. Or as, as we like to call it in front of saber fencing uh, fencers The only true form of sport fencing <laughs> um, my, uh, my old fencing master used to refer to saber fencing As fly fishing Because, um, you know, sabers, sport sabers are so flexible that you can whip the blade around someone's shoulder and hit them on the back. Um, And I absolutely adored uh, epee fencing, Um, you know, in terms of just as a as a pure athletic endeavor. I I find it uh, I've always I I adored it. Um, But from there, I, I started getting asked to do what was called theatrical fencing, which is which is something that sort of happens more in. Fencing clubs where it's more traditional, um, more traditional swords—you know, your rapiers and small swords and long swords and, and zweihanders and things like that—but done for the purposes of of sort of showing off the beauty of choreography. Um, and so the club was doing a little bit of that, and, and then I started getting asked to actually choreograph plays. So I spent a couple of years choreographing um, sword fights for the theater, which was an absolutely fantastic um, kind of gig to get. And um, oh, sorry.
0: No, I said yeah. I was just agreeing with you. Yes, I've I've done a little
1: bit of um, stage combat for 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 actors and what have you. It's good fun. Yeah, I mean it's 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 an amazing process. Especially, I was really really lucky uh, that my the first gig that I did um, that was of any sort of substance was uh, a production of uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses, or you know, dangerous liaisons. Which of course, um, there's a fabulous uh, John Malkovich version of that, uh, of that film, uh, uh, which is, you know, based on the play. And, um, and I got to work with the actors, with two actors who are very keen to do a, you know, a great job of it. Um, and so we just spent, I don't know, probably a couple of hundred hours just practicing, you know, uh, various techniques and, and, and therefore building choreography out of their bodies and out of their characters instead of just, me kind of imposing it down on them, right? Um, and so that was just a, a terrific experience. And so I, 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 you know, and then I did a production. Uh, I was doing the fight choreography for a production of um, uh, a, sort of a modern adaptation of um, Richard the uh, Third in London. Um, and that was, uh, I say, modern, not in the sense of of as if it was done, you know, in modern times, but modern in the sense of it's a different historical interpretation of Richard the Third, where he's he's not quite the villain that Shakespeare decided to make him. Right. Um, And that was just, you know, all kinds of crazy sword fights and, and it was just wonderful. Um, So, yeah. So, you you know, there is a very big shift though, that goes from, especially if you, if you sort of go from, let's say modern sport fencing to kind of HEMA, you know, hit the historical European martial arts, like to sort of more authentic um, historical forms to then choreography, Um because choreography has to be to some degree discernible to the audience, right? There's no you know, which means that of course everything is is um uh is more sort of is more sort of grand, things that should be lightning fast are actually slowed down, things that should be somewhat slower are often sped up. Um so it it probably turned it turns you into the world's worst actual fencer. <laughs> the better the better your choreography, the worse you're likely. You you learn how to pretend to hit people really well.
0: Yeah, I mean there are lots of uh, skills that cross over, like you know weapons handling and control of measure and what have you. Um, the way I define the difference, because you know people always ask me, "Oh, you do fighting Oh, so you do sword fights for movies and things like?" Okay, in historical martial arts, when you fight, nobody should see what happened and somebody should die. In stage combat. Everyone should see what happened, but nobody should die. So they are like they have massively overlapping skill sets, but fundamentally opposed goals.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and and absolutely, I think even even within that, there's there's two. I sort of tended to see amongst people who were you know uh, my superiors in 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 all of these the various arts. Um, I tended to see two sort of major. It kind of approaches, which I would almost call two different instincts around, um, around stage combat. And one is, um, we're going to take all of these moves and we're going to turn them into stage combat moves, if you will. Right. So a thrust yep. is no longer a thrust. It's a stage combat thrust. Um, and then we're going to put these together and we're going to construct this kind of almost computer program of safety. Um, because of course safety is, is the primary aim of, of stage combat. Um, and we're going to put all the stuff so that it looks beautiful and it, and, it, and it's a, its its own little mini play within the play. Um, there's the other approach, or, or I think of as almost a choreographer's or a fight director's instinct, which is we're going to do everything basically for real. It's just mm-hmm. that because we know what's coming, um, we can therefore have the actors be protected against it. And I think in some ways that's probably a better approach. That isn't, in fact, the approach that I used to take. I was very much more of the... I'm here to choreograph, um, right. a performance. Uh, and, and so it's interesting. Cause I remember sometimes when I'd work with another fight director, I, I got to spend a bunch of time with, um, F. Bron McCash, uh, who's a good yeah. friend of mine who, who was the choreographer for a Highlander, uh, for the Highlander TV series. Um, most of that, and it, I, you know, there's no one, I, I never met anyone who, who could sort of come up with, you know, more obscure sort of weaponry and suddenly, you know, compose a fight with it than, than Braun. Um, but he would sometimes say to me when we were sort of working on something together, why are you doing this, you know, this move so slow, you know, cause he'd seen me fence in other contexts. And, um, and I would be like, Oh, because I'm not actually lunging, I'm pretending to lunge. Uh-huh. Um, and so those, those two distinctions are always, I always find them interesting when you're watching a fight taking place, uh, you know, a, a piece of, stage combat taking place.
0: Yeah. And I think you can usually see when the actors are going for it Mm -hmm. because it's just their body language is different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And and I think, um, and and that's where you can sort of move into that very dangerous ground. Not, not simply from safety, but we used to, I think one of the ways um, a few fight directors I knew used to describe it is that, there 's a difference between when the audience is afraid for the characters versus when they 're afraid for the actors that 's a good distinction and and you can any and an audience needs no mastery or expertise in sword play or choreography in order to experience that distinction that That's they true. will suddenly feel they because we 're all physical beings because our our muscles twitch when other, when we see other people 's mm-hmm. muscles twitch. Um, that they will suddenly realize these actors are not in control of the fight, um, and that is a, a, a and w- when you see it and it's and it's kind of soul crushing when you watch it because you you know you're pulled out of the story and you're yeah. and you're just suddenly afraid and you're like oh my god what have we all done we've just we're human beings we've just taken these two poor uh, people in the sword fight or however many are in the battle scene and we've we've you know put them in actual physical jeopardy so yeah when you when, when I had seen that happen once or twice, um, when I was, when I was doing fight direction, uh, and you know, you have to clamp down on it so hard because it's hard for the actors because their, their job is to be in the moment, right? Their job isn't to, it's not about just memorizing things. Um, it's about being there. They're supposed to, they look for those moments of authenticity, of unexpected authenticity, they looked for you know their, their their entire actor's instincts are like, ah, I know where he's gonna parry. I think I'll stick the sword somewhere else this time, right? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I still remember I was doing uh I was working with a um uh with a wonderful actor, um, and this this was in London, uh and there was a moment where he had to he was carrying a battle axe, uh sort of a one-handed axe, a double headed axe. It was it was not historical, but it looked great on stage. And it was, you know, we have right. had it custom made from aluminum and things like that. And he has this moment where he just spins this axe around and he gets this big battle yell and in is, in, you know, going on and like, you know, shakes it in front of the audience. And, um, it ended up in the fourth row center oh. during dress rehearsal. Um, oh, uh, shit. <laughs> blessedly during res- uh, uh, dress rehearsal, um, And uh, yeah, and we were, we had to, you know, you had to kind of work through exactly why did this happen? Exactly what do we need to do? We had a moment that that, uh, there was a moment right before the lights would go down during at the end of this big battle of Bosworth when everything's gone, you know, battle of Bosworth is, you know, the only way to stage that is with these, you know, these sudden explosions of of choreography happening all over the place, right? Um, you know, when you're using the lights all the time, right, to, to focus on two actors here, three actors there, right, because you're trying to simulate hundreds of people at the edge of a battle. And we always ended it with there was a, a guy who would run straight down, say, uh, center stage right towards the front of the stage with a spear and be pretending to throw it over the audience's head. Oh, um, and because, and from day one, because we, we just knew that in the heat of all of that, because you, you know, we had timpanis and drums, like there was just like all this sort of battle frenzy that builds up on the stage. So yeah, before that, uh, before that actor would go out on stage, every time we had someone gaff taping the spear to his hand. <laughs> so every yeah. single time he had to, this poor guy had to had his hand taped up so much that if he if he tried to let go, he'd end up just falling over on his face. But uh, <laughs> but he did a great job, and he you know, he never he never launched the spear into the audience. But yeah, that's those are the those are the issues um, uh, with that, which blessedly do not come up when you're writing fight scenes in a novel. You are allowed no. to throw the axe anywhere you want. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent, and uh, so. After so, you were doing stage combat in uh, Vancouver, and then how did you get into the historical martial arts?
1: Um, mostly, uh, and, and you know, and I never did a ton of it, but um, okay. but I, I I came across uh, Devon Borman, who I'm sure mm-hmm. lots of folks uh, know, and sure. um, who and Academy Duello, and so every once in a while, I'll sort of go down, uh, with those guys and, and, uh, do a little bit of, you know, rapier or longsword or things like that. Um, Devin I found to be a absolutely stellar teacher. I, uh, I a while back I did their week long, um, instructor training program. Um, okay. and I'm Pretty intense. Of, yeah, <laughs> well, I was just doing it cause I was sort of going, Oh, it's going to be mostly 20 year olds, you know, like, you know, will I hold up well in terms of endurance? Cause it was sort of nine hours a day basically. Um, and, but, you know, but it's so brilliantly put together. I mean, uh, you know, Devin has really, I think, thought through, just spent so much passion and energy trying to figure out how you construct curriculum for historical European martial arts. And I know that, that lots of people around the world are, are engaged in that. And, and I was, and it's, I find it so impressive that you have something like historical European martial arts where you would naturally think of it, if you're outside of it, you would assume that this was a kind of, you know, we're throwing this together and, you know, we're all just swinging swords and whatever and being poncy about it. Um, And yet I'm always amazed by the the levels of expertise, not just in the weapons or the use of the weapons, but in uh, pedagogy that goes into it. Um, You know, having spent uh, 10 years working at Vancouver Film School, uh, often, largely constructing uh, pedagogy and curriculum and programs, I was just so impressed um, with that with with how much is out there um, and just how open uh, a lot of the historical European martial arts or the, or the ones that I I've tended to encounter are towards different people and different bodies and you know uh, right. it's it's I love that sort of inclusive spirit that I that I've seen uh, that I've seen around. Excellent, yeah, I I couldn't agree
0: more. Like we have. People from all different cultures, all different sizes and shapes and ages, and there. The thing is, historically, uh, the martial arts of say I don't know 15th century Italy were not. You're supposed to be this height and this width and this level of fitness, or whatever. it was. It was constrained by class, but it wasn't constrained by body type. Um, although you know there weren't very many women. Practicing historical martial art, uh, practicing swordsmanship in the fifteenth century that we know of, we do know that some people did do it. Some women did do it. So um, it's it would be weird now if we required a particular body type to teach somebody. I mean, I mean some some ask you, like I mean ballet, for instance. If you're you know if you're past a certain weight, you're never going to be good at ballet, right? And if you're not there are there are sports well like Epe right you really Mm -hmm. want to be tall and slim to be a good Epeist right Mm -hmm. whereas if you're punching people instead you can be tall but you want a bit more weight and if Mm -hmm. you're wrestling people it's probably better to be short Mm -hmm. right you want the same weight but you want it in a smaller package but with like sword arts there is no one optimal body type particularly when the weapons are sharp
1: oh absolutely Uh, yeah no I, I agree and that and again, you know, from a fictional standpoint. Well, but to get back to what you were saying there, I always find this a kind of an interesting, um, an interesting facet of just uh, of, of our culture, which is that we have all of these assumptions about the past. Um, and one of one of our key assumptions that we tend to apply to the past is that we are the most progressive, liberal, uh, you know, sophisticated right. society that has ever existed. Right. Um, And everybody before us were, you know, were sort of Neanderthals. Um, And in fact, you know, that's not true. We know that's not true. We know that, you know, the 1950s, especially in North America, was a a time where there was a very intentional um, push to sort of define women as, uh, you know, belonging in Sort of the homemaker roles, and that this had always been the case, and you know because they were trying to get women out of the workforce because after World War II, so that the men, you know, would would suddenly have their jobs back, Um, as was done to lots of other groups as well. You know, in in North America, um, African Americans were suddenly. Um, excluded from uh, more systematically excluded from roles that they, they had been having before. And it's the same when it comes to things like sword play, where we sort of retrofitted this notion of who was and wasn't a warrior or could and couldn't be, um, you know, a, a, a sword, uh, a, sword fighter. Um, and, and it's, and it's, you know, uh, it's, it's not that, you know, it's that thing where it, unless it's like, unless, unless you can prove it was 50, 50, right. Like the, right. half of all, you know, warriors were, were women, you know, then people go, Oh, well, see, you know, it wasn't half, you know, so therefore it doesn't count. But, but it's a, but of course it's a, it's a silly proposition. Um, and so we do kind of have that expectation in our heads. I run, I run into this sometimes. Um, I, I sometimes, uh, tell the story of, um, I was, I think, I was doing a Reddit AMA, and and for those who don't follow Reddit, Reddit is Reddit is a place on the internet where people go to talk about the things that they love the most passionately, and to talk about people they'd like to kill. Um, and that's, that's a fair description <laughs> of Reddit, actually. <laughs> Reddit is is the sort of, in some ways, the ultimate expression of of the internet. Um, and I remember there was a guy who 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 posted something and he, he was posting about my, my second great Scotts book, which is called night shadow. And it features a character named Dariana, who is a very um, deadly uh swordswoman. And, um, and I think this guy was saying, you know, uh, I, I just, I wish these, you know, modern fantasy writers didn't always feel like they had to kind of artificially construct these, Female warriors, you know, because uh, everyone knows that the female bodies don't work that way. They don't have the muscle mass. They don't have the this and that. And I I don't like to engage people in in sort of negative forms. Um, And so I just sort of instead told them, I just instead chose to, to write back and say, well, look, you know, I can't speak to all of this. I'm I'm not a I'm not a professional historian, um, but I will tell you that Diana for me was partly inspired by Ella Hattan, who I don't know if you know was you know, was an actress in, from Zanesville, Ohio in in the mid 19th century, um, who studied uh, swordplay when her acting career was coming apart. Started studying swordplay with uh, Colonel uh, Monstery, who was a uh, you know right. pretty renowned. Um, soldier of fortune and stuff. And she started doing all of these prize fights um, with not just with, you know, uh, saber or, or, or knives, but, but on horseback and sort of all these forms and was, um, you know, was having, was eventually going across the country, putting ads in the paper that she would, you know, duel anyone in a, in an exhibition duel. Um, And there was a famous, I can't remember this poor guy's name, he was he was quite well known as as another one of these like I you know I will face anyone with a sword kind of guys, um, and he kept leaving the cities where she was <laughs> chasing him across the country because he just because the risk was just too high. She was just too good. Elahatan she got she dubbed herself La, La Yaguarina, that's which is funny. Yes, yeah,
0: La Yaguarina. And, yes, there's a there's an there's an entry for her in uh, James Parath's book, "Rejected Princesses." Which is a fantastic right. book,
1: yeah, that's right, and yeah, and I just and so to me that's where I always tell people. Uh, I, I think five years ago I said if nobody writes a historical adventure story featuring Elahatan, then one day I'm going to do it because I don't Please think do. I'm, the, I'm the, I don't think I'm the best position to do it, but I, I keep wanting someone to do it. Um, So one of these days I I may have to, if no, if no one else does, because she was just like, what a fantastic figure, right. To go from like, you know, a a stage actress who's kind of struggling. She was, she was like five foot. She was very, she was quite short. She's about 150 Mm -hmm. pounds. Um, uh, And she was, but you know, you can see when you see the old photos of her, you can see someone who, who, whose body, you know, probably wasn't um, as adapted to, um, being the you know the 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 most beautiful woman on the stage or something, but who was perfectly adapted for being an absolutely devastating um, you know sword fighter, and I, and I, and I'm not saying you know you don't one doesn't have to buy into the notion that she was the greatest you know duelist of the mid 19th century. Um, we but we certainly have to agree that she must have been pretty damn good, right? Um,
0: She's certainly a contender, and the fact that oh, you have absolutely. a woman
1: as a contender for that title
0: is just. Disproves the whole notion that women can't fight swords.
1: Yeah, and, and and the fact that we don't—the fact that she was so largely kind of um, ignored after the fact—I I think there was there's been some movement to try to get her sort of acknowledged now for mm. what you know you have to admit is just an absolutely amazing accomplishment, completely irrespective of gender, to just be this person in the you know the, the <laughs> right. mid 1800s who's who's so you know who's going off and doing these exhibition duels in, in multiple weapons and multiple contexts. Um, I just, I find her amazing. And so that was that was my sort of reaction to it, was to go, you know what, I can't speak to the historicity of, of, of everything, but this was a real figure and she did this, and that's my inspiration for wanting to write, you know, Dariana in, in Night's Shadow. Um, and that's, you know, that's often how it is for writers. Right,
0: and let's be strictly accurate. I mean, the Great Coats is not a
1: history. No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> it's, in, in fact, it's, it's a, a novel, <laughs> oh, a series of novels. It, yeah, and, and they're fantasy novels. They're set in a different world. Uh, right. They're set in a world that, that is on, on, on every different level is intended to be um, at least partially ahistorical, not the least right. of which is that it's based on um, the idea of an early modern society that hasn't broken past feudalism. Um, right. which is, which is a historical for any number of reasons, but because I wanted to show a society that was, that was fundamentally in a form of, um, decline, uh, even as it was coming into what we would think of as an early modern period. So what happens if you kind of divorce, um, uh, shift in governmental styles from mm-hmm. all the other forms of development? Um, I also sometimes, uh, make the claim when anyone brings it up that, uh, that also steel is a little bit different uh, in this world, in that it's um, there's a pretty massive. It's it's a very very expensive to make very very good steel, uh, and so you'll have like very strong. You can have uh, excellent steel swords, but plate armor isn't as durable <laughs> as, as it would be in our world, <laughs> which, which is a very which a very you handy plot it, device. Yes, it, it gets you past lots of sins. But it's funny, I remember when I was doing Trader's Blade, the first book in the series, when I was doing the, the final revisions to that book, I went through and made sure to remove any type of reference to an accurate historical, um, to accurate historical sword fighting uh, terminology, specifically because I didn't want people to get hung up on w- whether one move was accurately defined or not. Right, and that's, that's one of the critical things that... okay.
0: A list of sword fighting techniques make a terrible fight in a book. Right? Absolutely. Um, and you have this thing where you, you you make some sort of statement about how fights go and then provide a counter example and then you have the fight happen and it's basically illustrating the principle that the, the character is is going on. But in each case... The thing you're defining is made up. It's absolutely, it's, yeah. So, so, so it's, totally, it, it's totally internally consistent, but it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't map to any historical fencing system or any particular martial art or whatever that we know of. So there isn't any, there aren't any of those logic problems that you could
1: get. If you say, "Ah, but if his
0: hammer's in cart, then surely it would be palm up," but you're not saying cart; you're saying he's hitting him like this.
1: I know, yeah. I, I, I think I used the the if you remember the TV show Friends, I think I used the Phoebe system of sword fighting. You know, she was <laughs> she was the the, the character who w- would play guitar quite poorly, and but when she'd teach someone guitar, they they sort of she tries to teach Joey guitar at one point. And he says, well, "I want to know how to play like an E chord or a G chord," and she's like, "No, no, no." dragon claw, you know, you know. So she just makes up all of these different terms for, for chords. And, and so I thought, well, that's a really, really good approach when you're, when you're writing a fantasy sword fighting system. The, one of the main reasons for that though, is that, um, and I'm sure you encounter this is, is that, um, historically European martial arts, sometimes uh, some, some students of it will tend to try to kind of almost construct these Boolean logic rules around it. Well, you know, you can't defeat this move with this move, and you can't do this with this, and this right. doesn't pair with this. Um, but in the context of the great coats, I'm writing about these sword fighting judges. You know, these yeah. these traveling judges who have yeah, to an sometimes
0: element of judge dread in there, just the tiniest little whiff of judge dread.
1: I know people tell me that, and I, I had never read Judge Dredd, so I, okay. I completely missed the reference. I was build I was basing them on the 12th century English justices itinerant. Um, ah, okay, right? Who know. were who? Because you know, when we, we when we think of a legal court, you know, the, the mm-hmm. word court didn't come from some, some special legal court. It meant like the king's court, um, but the king's court couldn't be everywhere at once, and so. Um, you would have these justices itinerant who, who would do these circuits, which is where the term circuit court comes from in the United States. In fact, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a circuit court lawyer traveling with another lawyer and a judge on horseback sometimes from town to town on the circuit, you know, and then hearing cases. Um, and in the British context, you, you had these judges going around on a six month tour, for example, Um, And, you know, so if you had a legal dispute in one of these small villages or towns, uh, especially mostly in the smaller villages, you kind of have to wait several months before, Mm -hmm. you know, the judge came around to say that guy killed my cow. I want, you know, I want restitution. Um, And and I always believed as well, if you, you know, in, in what sparse records there are, it always reads a little bit to me as if there was a secondary function to those justices itinerant, which was basically to keep an eye on, on where things were going in the kingdom for the king um, sure. and sort of report back. Um, so with the great coats, I was writing, I was sort of taking that to a somewhat more elaborate level where you have a society that has an incredibly long tradition of trial by combat that never had the um, strong attempts to rein in dueling. But in fact, kind of elevates it. I have a, I have a document because of a, an upcoming book called Our Lady of Blades, which is set in a dueling court. Um, and it's all the different kinds of judicial duels uh, that I sort of constructed for the world because I wanted... I wanted the reader to, to enter not sort of just a, a world where someone goes, right, I demand trial by combat. Okay. If you win, you're innocent. If you're, if you lose, you're guilty. Yeah. Um, I wanted something that was way more elaborate so that you'd have things like sentencing duels where the judge says you're sentenced to 10 years and you go, I, you know, I would like to appeal. And so the, you know, you're suddenly uh, in a duel with a, with a, with a prosecuting fencer. Um, who you know every 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 touch you score every every cut you you score is a year off your sentence, and every cut done to you is a year added. So you don't you know, you can potentially <laughs> walk out of court with a twenty-five or thirty-year sentence, or you could walk out with no you know no sentence no, at so. all. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, and it and and in the context of Our Lady of Blades, one of the things introduced is that because it is a. a because it is um, absolutely illegal for someone to be killed in a sentencing duel, um, they have to be very, as soon as a wound is too grave, the duel is called off. So if you suddenly, you know, stab someone in the, in, in the, in the thigh and it's a wound that's, you know, they can't continue, as was the case with a lot of uh, sword duels in the in our own history. Once they can't continue, that's it, it's over. And so it's a tactic of the prosecuting um, oh the, the prosecutors yeah. at times, yeah, to, to either <laughs> go for it or to uh, to pretend that a wound is so serious that they can't continue. And the judges tend to be biased towards the prosecutors, so they'll send it, you know what should be just a, a tiny scratch. The you know the prosecutor will be sort of like, oh, you know, I can't continue. I've, I'm losing too much blood and. Um, and so, there, you know, it's it's I like I love that intersection between violence and and sort of political machinations. And so, there's a lot of that <laughs> in the great coats. But so, getting back to sort of how that applies to fencing techniques, that means you have these judges who are constantly in these very strange, precarious situations. So their technique is not built around. It, I it's it's neither built around. Uh, this sort of elegant formalist notion of fencing, nor is it built around the, whatever is the most efficient way to kill someone. It's often built around, I need to gain an unusual upper hand in this situation to produce one of these many different kinds of outcomes. And therefore uh, there's tons of tricks. Falcio is is constantly pulling out one trick after another to kind of um, based on whoever he's fencing, which I mean, you know, in sport fencing, we see that, right? You know that so, you you don't you don't try to use the same tricks on a on a beginner that you use on a more experienced fencer because the beginner will ignore them and just <laughs> stab you, um, whereas <laughs> right. a more experienced fencer you know will fall for some but not others.
0: Yeah, and uh, like like famously, there's a guy who wrote a book called Epe 2.0, which as an EPS yes, you really should read it because it's it's <laughs> a fantastic book. Who Johan Harmenberg, and he won the Olympic gold medal in both the team and the uh, men's individual épée in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. And he knew that he was likely to fence one of his teammates in the final. And so, for like two years before the final, every time he fenced that teammate, he behaved a certain way. And when they got to the final, he fenced completely differently. Right? And at the end <laughs> of it, when he when he when he'd won, his his teammate said, "You didn't fence like that in practice." And he said, "Well, that wasn't practice." Right? Okay. <laughs> like. Yeah, <laughs> the story—the stories in this book—is, but it's that—it's that, it's that sort of thing. It's like you have to sort of be able to adjust what you're doing to the absolute specifics of the situation: who and why and what the outcome is that you want. Um, and yeah, I mean, and
1: that—that's that, what makes it so. That's what makes it such a a fascinating endeavor. Is that. Um, everyone has, it's almost like poker in a way, right? Everyone has their tells and everyone Mm -hmm. has their kind of preferred techniques and and preferred approaches. And, um, and so the more, the more you can understand what those are, the, the better advantage you have, which is one of the reasons why different body types, you know, some very tall, very long limbed fencers struggle against shorter fencers. Um, cause you know, they'll tend to, you know, they'll just tend to have the, the tip of their epee go over the shoulder. If that person ducks down so much as a half an inch, uh, and then right. suddenly they're inside and, and you're basically done. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Now, now the great coats actually wear great coats. And I, I understand that there's
1: like an origin story there. Is, is that oh, correct? Yeah. Where does the idea of the great coats come from? Well, the actual coats themselves, it was just that when I was acting, um, so I, do, I spent some time as an actor, not a good one. Um, I think my brother watched a film I was in, or it was an independent film where I was playing the lead. And I think after I asked, what did you think? And he said, the good news is you weren't actually the worst part of that movie. Um, and that was the <laughs> highest praise I would ever receive from a family member on my acting skills. So okay. I prefaced this, uh, that way. Um, but uh, he once gave me this uh, this uh, great coat, like a really long kind of um, wool great coat, which I always thought was like. When he gave it to me, I thought is, I can't see myself wearing this. But but actors often you're stuck on night shoots, um, mm-hmm. uh, and I was stuck on a whole pile of night shoots, and so you're constantly cold, and you need something to throw on quickly, and uh, and so I would bring this coat. And which was just fantastic because you could just bundle up in it uh, after a scene and and be protected. And it had these massive pockets all over it, you know, and Mm -hmm. because it's such a big coat, like you could fit like a, you know, an entire hardback novel into one of the pockets. Um, And so it just, I, I found myself wearing it whenever I was out on set and feeling like, oh, you know, I feel totally safe when I have this coat and I can carry everything I need inside of it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a coat that like, you traveled in that had every single thing you needed in it. And so when I was writing the great coats, I wanted them to have um, some kind of a, of an advantage. And so I sort of came up with this notion of these coats that, uh, that looked like long leather great coats, but had, you know, something like a hundred pockets and little Mm. slots and things hidden inside um, and bone plates. So these very slender bone plates from a, from a fantastical uh, bird, um, that's very sort of durable, um, but very slender and light sewn into the lining of the coats so that it's almost the equivalent of armor for them. Uh, and that, and that was all based on, uh, the coat, my act, what I refer to as my acting coat that my brother <laughs> had given me. Um, and it's interesting because to me, you know, when you're writing these things, this is sort of the, the, the interesting peril of being a novelist. When you're writing these things, you think, oh, that's kind of a, f- Okay little detail, like that's just a fun little detail. And then all of a sudden that will become the thing that people really fixate on. And so that people really fixate on those coats. I think everybody wants to buy one of those great coats. Well, I want one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I really really want want (laughs) one. Yeah. Well, as soon as we start manufacturing I think I'm gonna have to get vastly more famous um, for those to start getting manufactured. But they they are a wonderful plot device to play with, because every time I'm writing a, a great coats duel of some kind. I sort of get to go right. I need them to do something interesting here. Oh, there's a tiny one-inch blade that's hidden in the cuff right. of these coats. Right.
0: Yes. You, you you can just always add an extra pocket. It's not like the, that's the right. number of pockets is actually determined somewhere. And um, you know you can just you can you can add anything at any time. That's really handy. <laughs> yeah. And you have another series coming in that universe, don't you?
1: I do. That's uh, called Court of Shadows, which takes place after the first four uh, Great Coats novels. So the first four Great Coats novels are all basically told by um, Falcio Valmond, who is the Mm -hmm. former first cantor of the Great Coats. Um, And so the cantors were the, uh, because the Great Coats, one of the things they do is they sing their verdicts because often they need their verdicts to be remembered in these small towns. Mm -hmm. So they, as as was somewhat the case with um, troubadour culture, where you're often building uh, songs off of pre-existing melodies that everybody's familiar with. Um, they would sometimes compose their verdicts that way. So people would remember the underlying rationale and nobody could come along later and say, Oh, you know, that's not what, that's not what the judge decided. Um, And so the cantors were sort of the leaders of that. And Falco Valmond was the, was the first cantor of the great coats. Um, But in one of the things that happened across that series is you start to introduce other orders of people because you want your, your universe to be interesting. And so, there's orders like the Dashini who are sort of who in the context of the Great Coats, the first series, everyone hates them. They're sort of these assassins um, mm-hmm. who are kind of mysterious and largely despised. But we find out eventually are one of the are an order that was not so dissimilar from the Great Coats before. They were the order of spies. And um, and one of their jobs was what happens if a, if a judge deems, let's say, a powerful lord is guilty and has to be arrested or or prosecuted. And that lord just decides I'm just gonna sit inside my walled castle. And unless you want a war where you're gonna kill, you know, uh, several hundred um innocents, you can't get to me. And so they needed, there needed to be an order of people who could sneak into a castle and kill a <laughs> lord once in a while for the good of the country. Um and also the the Bardadi, who are sort of the the troubadour uh and, and also the memory of the of the country. And so there's all these different orders that evolved. And so when it was time to write a second series, I didn't want to just write, you know, another extension of Falchio going off and and trying to save the world, but instead uh, introduce other characters from some of these other orders. Uh, And so this series, The the Court of Shadows, is a bit different from a conventional fantasy series where in a typical fantasy series, you have, you know, the same sort of protagonists. Who kind of carries forward book one, book two, book three, book four, and it's it's almost as if you're it's it's just one big book that's just been split into four in the way that Lord of the Rings was one book split into yeah. three. Um, so here instead, it's it's a little bit more like the Marvel movies where the first four books introduce our origin stories that can sort of be told almost in any order of different these different main characters uh, who will then come together in the sort of the fifth book climax to sort of face. The, the, the big hidden threat against poor benighted Tristia, the, uh, the <laughs> <Nice> country that's... <laughs> that's a very never, unlucky country in many respects. <laughs> it's a very... It's a deeply unlucky country. And we start to find out in, in this new series why they're so unlucky, that it's not entirely their own fault. It's not entirely just because they're all so venal that, um, that their society's constantly under threat. Um, do
0: you... Uh, don't have to answer this question, of course. But do you actually have you actually planned all this out in depth and detail first, um, or having written the first four Great Coach books, did you think, well, actually, hang on, now I could do this other thing, and that would explain these other things, and
1: I, do you, do you plan everything in advance, or I um, I wish I could say yes uh, because that would make life m- much easier. There's always the thing about outlining and there's some, the world has some fantastic outliners in it. Um, And sometimes I try to outline uh, and it just gets me into trouble, but often what it tends with me, it tends to lead me to the next natural step and the next natural step after the events of Tyrants Throne, after the final book in the great cut series, the next natural step is to jump straight to, the new first canter of the great coats and what Mm -hmm. she's going through and all of that. And when I started writing that, I thought I'm, I'm doing the two most dangerous things you can do when you've written a character that people that, that, that that has, that has a fan base of people who really love them. So, so Falchio has a, has a lot of, there's a lot of people when they love the great coats, what they love is Falchio. Um, some people love the great coats and hate Falchio, interestingly enough, but, um, but still, uh, the, the risk was you don't want to repeat yourself. You don't want to just go, right, it's right. the same three guys running around, having adventures and with their banter. Um, but when you try, when you put yourself in a situation where, okay, I'm writing about a new trio and it's a new first cantor of the Great Coats, then you're going to be running away from that. And running away from that means instead of Chalmers being fantastic as a dualist and ingenious she's clumsy at it and fails at it. And instead of there being this wonderful friendship between the trio, well, we'll make it three people who don't know each other and aren't getting along. And all of a sudden you're basically writing the exact book that nobody would ever want to read if they (laughs) happened to love the first four books. And so for me, I have to kind of try to go, okay, I need to go off in a somewhat different direction. Um, And so I started exploring other aspects of the world that weren't as, as well seen. Um, because one of the problems when you're writing a when you're writing epic fantasy of any type is it tends to all take place largely at the same scale. So you know if you're it's very difficult to spend uh, 300 pages in a tavern somewhere if the scale that you're working at is the country's about to be taken over. Right. Um, and so, uh, doing it the way that I'm doing it with Court of Shadows, I get to kind of take these characters and and tell swashbuckling stories in contexts that I haven't seen in other places. So, Play of Shadows, for example, is about an actor who is becoming a who's discovering that he may be a bard one of the what's called a bardati varistor, which is an actor who, when they play a historical figure on stage, is sometimes taken over by the spirit of that actual historical figure. And therefore, it starts to change their lines because that historical figure didn't say those things that show up in the play. And and this was informed for me by the Richard the Third play that I did in the UK. Oh, because the whole okay. point of that play was was the story we've been given is not what really happened. Richard the Third wasn't the you know the villain everybody wanted him to be. Um, and so it allowed me to write you know a, a massive swashbuckling adventure set in the theater, which I hadn't seen much of before um, and so I, uh, that becomes more interesting for me and, and hopefully more compelling for the readership
0: okay so uh, you're you're taking the opportunity to kind of take little parts of the world and just go into them and expand them and, and work at that scale that's, that's a great idea because there's lots and lots and lots of little details in the first four books that you go I want it. and then of course the story takes you somewhere else Excellent. Okay, and um, a little birdie tells me that there's some uh, black powder and
1: blades coming together. Yeah, I, so. I had this idea. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't want to step on you there. No, 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 no fine. Go ahead. Oh, I um, yeah. My my secret reason for actually um, uh, wanting to come on the podcast was so that I could quiz you a little bit um, okay. because I had wanted to write. Um, and I've I've taken two stabs at it so far, and then and abandoned both. And but I'm determined to make this work. I had wanted to write a kind of a young adult Greycoats novel, mm-hmm. um, and because this this such a big readership for the spell series, and then they all say to me, well, you know, I get these letters from people going, um, you know, well, I, I'm. 14 years old and I just finished the 6 spellslinger books you know uh, you know should I should I read trader's blade and I'm almost like oh, it's just a little too it's a little too dark in places there's some of the themes are a little too adult it, it, lots of 14 year olds lots of 12 year olds can read all that stuff no problem but not everyone can and I never know and I always feel like there's no real bridge and so I thought I'd like to write kind of a young adult Coat series that allowed me to deal with what it's like to become a great coach for the first
0: oh, time oh oh my god so you're gonna have like training montages and stuff exactly that that, to- that is my favorite kind of martial arts art experience. like that's why empire strikes back is the best of the original right. movies because you know you see how yoda trains luke yeah and that's yeah those training montages are like my favorite thing in movies so
1: Okay, this is so, so so you're going to be doing training montages in your next in your in your book, brilliant in the, in the YA series, yeah. So I yeah I wanted to do so, I wanted to do something where um, a, a sort of a, a, a different trio of young of younger people come up um, and that we that we start where it's sort of set off in the north a little bit where. There aren't any great coats around. And, and so the first book is sort of building to them deciding to be great coats. And I, I, I wanted, I, and I came up with this idea that I really quite love, which is that the way this comes about is we have a young man who's, you know, 17 years old. He, he was training to be a clockmaker, which to him is the clockmaker is the highest level of art and craft and science because everything has to be perfect and precise and, and all these right. kinds of things. Um, whose uh, father basically forces him uh, to come north, abandon his training, and join him in his weaponsmith's shop uh, because his father's hands get burned in a fire, fire accident, so he doesn't have the, the, the dexterity anymore. And so his son is the one who's you know, making all of these very expensive weapons for, for rich people. Um, and, uh, and that one of the things he's asked to do that sort of sets off the story is someone comes in and, and says, I want a perfect replica of this dueling rapier made. Um, and, and the rapiers in, in Tristia are, um, you know, rather than going, are, are, it's, it's as if you have an extended period of what we think of as transition rapiers. Okay. So a little lighter, a little narrower than the conventional rapier, but not, not quite at the, not at the stage of small swords yet. Um, uh, and so he's told, I needed, I need a replica of this rapier, but I needed to be able to fire a bullet, uh, fire a lead ball. Uh, uh, and so that's hence the title of this first book, the black powder blade. And so I was wrestling with, I had this memory, which I, which must be false because I've never seen it since. And I, and my research hasn't turned it up. I swear that I had seen a rapier, um, a 16th century rapier, that had in a in a in a museum that had a pistol built into it, yeah um, but I can never find evidence of those now because they tend to be more like hunting sabers or hunting swords and things like that with a pistol built in ah okay, so, so I need you to come up with this for me on the spot. Okay. How does this work
0: All right, well, firstly. Yeah, you can have a sword with a pistol attached to it, which makes it a less good sword because the handling isn't that great, and of course it's a less good pistol because you know the barrel isn't as big and you can't you know, you, you have less space to work in. So there are comp- You get you get the combination weapon is never as good at either job, but it is it is um, it's certainly doable right mm-hmm. the issue the issue of making it a um a rapier is that the blade is so thin you don't have a space to put the mechanism mm mm-hmm. right so if the blade if a rapier blade is maybe an inch wide at the, at where it meets the hilt that is not enough space to put an ordinary um like flintlock wheel lock mechanism because they tend to be bigger right mm-hmm. so when you described that, my immediate thought was why not bulk up the handle a little bit, make it hollow, and you put the point over your shoulder and it shoots out of the pommel.
1: Oh, what a great idea. I hadn't thought that is, is not pommel.
0: historical. That is not historical. It is just I was thinking of this genius clockmaker person yeah. and that you want the because the problem is you're not gonna make it make it invisible. You can't you can't make the rapier absolutely like, a beautiful, perfect-looking rapier and have a gun stuck on the side of it where it has to be because you, yeah. you can't have the blade and the barrel being the same thing because barrels and blades just work completely differently. So, but you have, like, a bit of extra space in the handle, maybe a slightly chunkier handle than you would normally want
1: and, yeah, have, it, have, have the barrel coming out of the pommel. Oh that 's interesting because yeah, because I had been trying to come up with a way in my head where the where the ball could be coming down the fluting of the you know of a slightly wider rapier blade
0: that would which work. would give uh, it more accuracy it yeah. wouldn't give it more accuracy though oh it wouldn't i don 't think so um, <laughs> because like the way a barrel works mm-hmm. is the the gases behind the, the expanding gases pushing mm-hmm. the ball forward out of the barrel they rely on the barrel to hold to basically to direct them in the direction that uh, where you want the ball to go right so the barrel is there to basically compress the gases and direct them in a particular direction and those gases push the ball in that direction and if you have rifling that forces the ball to spin mm-hmm. as it goes down the barrel so and because it's spinning it's more accurate okay if you put if you put a shoot sorry if you if you extend the the blade right out of the barrel i may be wrong but my guess is when the gases come out of the end of the barrel and they hit the blade they're going to bounce off and they're going to send your ball off to the right right
1: yeah Yeah. i thought that i was worried that might be the case um, um, so that would be my feeling. I may be
0: wrong. We have bayonets, but bayonets are always offset from the barrel. So there's a space yeah. for the gases to kind of you know, expand out, and then there, there isn't like a flat plate that the, that the
1: bullet kind of travels along. Right. It's always, it's always free to leave the, the muzzle. I was also wondering whether if you had a kind of a bizarrely thick keyon's, on either side mm-hmm. would there be some way to rig it that way um, I mean with rapier you never want you, you never really want one of those you know goofy vertical hard vertical parries um, for for obvious reasons but you can sure. get into one at which point your key on can be basically directed point blank functionally at your at your target is Unlike that viable? The,
0: um, well okay generally speaking the let me just grab a dagger sorry
1: this is why I have to change the physics in my world. In my world, <laughs> the physics are such that gases <laughs> don't. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay.
0: Okay. So, with this dagger, you can see that the, the crossguard or the quillens, um, are in line with the edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you parry, you're parrying with the edge. Yeah. If you parry with the flat, it's going to bend down. Yep. So at that point, the bullet's going straight up or straight down.
1: Right. But if you so, parry so a Go ahead. But if you, if, you parry, uh, if you parry early in the cut, right? So the yeah. blade's, let's say, coming vertically down towards you. Mm-hmm. You parry early edge to edge. Um, you can get uh, a horizontal on that uh, from the key on, right? I wouldn't say so.
0: Because you need, you're going to need it pointing at the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the bullet to do any good. And at the moment, even if, even if it's close to horizontal the true edge is likely to be up and you're either going to be shooting yourself or you'll be shooting over their head.
1: Yeah. Well, I like your idea of the, of the, of it being in the grip itself because it's a, it's an unexpected maneuver. Um, you are definitely having to, uh, you, you lose some advantages. It's, it's a trickier shot. You have to practice for the shot clearly, right? Sure. Cause you have to make sure you're yeah. going to line it up exactly right.
0: Um, unless you
1: actually oh go ahead there's a sword in
0: the Wallace collection which is this fairly ordinary looking sword um, in a fairly chunky scabbard right and obviously you, you wear it like a ordinary person and it's fine so it's a sword okay? but it has a spring loaded blade that comes out of the pommel Oh, right, wow. And so it doesn't have a regular blade at all. You can't draw it, right? Mm-hmm. You push the button, and the blade comes out of the pommel. And so you and I are having a chat, and I have my hand resting on my sword so I don't accidentally trip up the ladies. And I press the button, and this, like, three-foot steel blade goes into you, and there we have it. <laughs> <Right>. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that, that is there in the Wallace Collection. I've actually handled it. Um really? So yeah, so the notion of weapons coming out of pommels, I've I've never seen it with, with black powder and I can't imagine how you would make a a real flintlock type mechanism work inside a rapier hill. I think there's gonna to have to be some some, you know, fictional magic going on there. Um but the notion of having having, you know, the dangerous bit come out of the pommel is is actually historical.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that makes that makes That makes sense. I, yeah, I'm always, I always love, uh, I think in the, in the great coats world, I I only ever have wheel locks. Um, they Mm -hmm. haven't, they haven't sort of invented the, uh, the flint lock yet, which I, I've, I've never understood the relationship between flint locks and wheel locks very well, because it seems like the flint lock is a vastly simpler mechanism, um, to like, why would you have to go through wheel locks to get to it? But there are certain advantages with the wheel lock, right? It's just that it's so expensive to make, but that's the beauty of a fantasy world. You can, make it as expensive as you want
0: yeah and i th- okay i'm 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 very much outside my area of expertise when i start <laughs> talking about historical firearms but my feeling is that also the wheel lock it requires a tool to span it so you have like a, yes. a, a spanning key mm-hmm. to to kind of whereas a flint lock you can just put it back with your thumb
1: yeah, but the uh that was one of the re- one of the reasons with this that, that I was envisioning a flintlock uh sorry, a wheel lock mechanism because um you only need to get it prepped the one time. It's meant right. as a murder weapon in the context of a duel. Um so but I love uh, I love the uh I love the barrel and the paw and the in the grip uh notion. So I'm going to figure out how to make that <laughs> work. Cause I think that's great. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've gotten what I came for. <laughs> well, my, I'm delighted my deception has, has succeeded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Now we, we've, we've sort of covered this indirectly uh, from various directions already. Uh, but uh, one of my patrons for the show on, on Patreon actually sent me a question for you. And he says he would love to hear about how you approach fight scenes in your writing and he actually says, "The amount of personality and character development that come through his fight scenes is spectacular, which I thought you'd like to hear. Um, so how yeah, you have a fight coming up. How do you approach it?
1: So my, my first priority I mean, setting aside there, there's setting aside the preamble as much as possible of mm-hmm. the fact that a, a fight scene is meant to expose character and, and advance story, so it can't just be a scene of, you know, two people sort of fighting back and forth over and over again, you know, for the sake of spectacle. Um, books don't do spectacle very well. Movies do spectacle very well, which is why you can sometimes get away with the two perfect, you know, martial artists, you know, going back and forth at high speed because you're, you're sort of watching a gymnastics exhibition in that sense. Um, you can't really do that in a novel. So it, it has to be first and foremost about um, showing the character showing emotion and despair and, and anger and all of these things through the, the movements themselves. Um, but that, that, that always sounds a little bit, um, not, not frou-frou, but, but, uh, but a little bit distal from, from what someone would think if they were trying to actually sit down and write a fight scene. So the way that I generally look at it is this, is that what I want to achieve, the more I want to be able to cover character and story, the less I can afford to cover detailed movements um if i if you right. describe every single movement of a of a fight of a one minute fight which is you know in a duel would be it's a lot of moves. reasonably long time um if you were to describe every single one of those movements you have no no room for anything else so what I try to do is I try to use the first part of of the of the fight which although it's not universally true quite often. If two people are coming to blows, the first part of the fight is much more hesitant. It's There's much more testing going on. You want to test the other person's reflexes and find their timing and find what they're, where their exposed points are. That's a perfect place to teach the reader how these weapons work, right? right. That, and, and so Falcio does this all the time. The first part of a Falcio fight, he's basically telling the reader how the weapons work and, and yeah. how things work. Which then allows you to, to move into a phase where it's about dialogue and characterization and emotion and drama while the reader continues to choreograph the fight scene. So if you look at a lot of my fight scenes, during the middle of the fight, there's almost no, uh, there's almost no description of what the swords are doing right. um, because you don't really need it. You've, you've, I, again, I always use this analogy of that your job as a writer is to make the reader the choreographer. Huh, Their choreography okay. will always be more interesting than See, than yours in action.
0: Now that you say that, it's obviously true for all the good like fencing matches in all the good, that have ever been written, right? Most of the actual actual blade work happens in your head. It's not actually on the page at all.
1: Yeah. But, absolutely. Yeah absolutely and and in fact if you if you look at uh some of the i i used to when i was teaching uh whenever I was asked to teach like a um you know master class on writing sword fights or something you know um at no, at uh fantasy conventions um i would always show people that what i think of as two nicely iconic sword fights um the one being the uh, the fight between Wesley and Inugo in The Princess Bride, that oh, sort of yes. duel, you know, I see you're yeah. using Bonetti against me, um, yeah. which is, which is uh, an almost archetypal representation of the Hollywood-style swashbuckling. Yeah. And, yeah. it's, and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and then I would counter that with the opening duel from uh, Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelist. Yes. okay, Which is the Bill Hobbs that- fight
0: that that was when when you said and i would counteract this with the one that popped into my head was uh, harvey keitel butchering that poor bloke
1: yeah because it's uh, and i think in fact i think that is bill hobbs uh the fight choreographer yeah. in that scene with him um, is it? i believe so i'd have to uh, someone told my friend cc C. humphreys told me that hmm. um because he trained with bill hobbs at, at a couple of points in his career um and so Ridley Scott had told the fight choreographer, uh, at the time, uh, I want you to make sure that none of this looks like any of that Hollywood crap. I want it to look ugly and brutal and cruel and, and you get that. And there's very few exchanges in that, um, mm. in that, uh, fight scene from the duelist, that opening, that opening fight, it is exactly what it's meant to be. And it conveys that sense of almost clumsy cruelty, you know, to it and, and desperation. And it does it beautifully. But um I tend to you know, I tend to kind of love the 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 more swashbuckly, the Bob Diamond and and um I always forget the portrait. Bob Anderson games. and Peter Diamond. Bob Anderson, Bob Anderson. Yeah. There you go. Um I, I love his sort of style. Um But if you look at that uh, fight scene with Inugo and Wesley, which you can see on on YouTube uh, for anybody that wants to watch it, and it is beautiful. Even there, what you'll see rhythmically is that the first few exchanges, even though they're not slow, they're not done poorly, but you'll see an exchange of two movements and it stops, and they'll move around. Two movements and it stops. And that's because he is teaching you how the swords work. Yep. So that once it moves in the next phase where everything's moving too fast and they're they're talking over it, you can't follow all that. You understand what's happening, yep. right? And so you as the audience will fill in the gaps of how the muscles are working and how what feels desperate and what doesn't. You'll fill those gaps in yourself. And so when in in the context of a novel, that's what I try to do is go, I'm going to have the 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 reader see in some detail in these first exchanges how these weapons work so that they can then fill in the rest of the choreography until I have a moment where I need to show them the way the the way the swords can work differently which is often how a sword fight ends A sword you know a sword fight's typically going to end because either somebody uh, you know gets clumsy or somebody you know gets distracted um or in, in a fantasy situation or a swashbuckling story, especially where you want it to be... Swashbuckling is all about cleverness, right? Like that's the sort of underlying sure. essence, this daring cleverness. Um, and so there you want to be able to then have the character go as the fight seems, as it seems like there's no way to win. Ah, but, you know, I had this idea, you know? And then you'll sort of elaborate that. Um, I will sometimes choose very intentionally. One of the things that, that um, a lot of writers, I don't think, play with enough is um, is tempo, uh, and I don't mean tempo in the classic fencing sense. I mean literally, the, you know, controlling the speed of the camera, so to speak. Um, and so I will often try, especially in that last moment. It's a, the most natural place to put it. I always tell people, if you're writing your first sword fight, you know, do it this way for the last blow. Crank the camera down and, and play that that last moment in absolute slow motion. So I will sometimes mm-hmm. describe, and I think I do it in, um, in at least one of the great coats fights. There's so many fight scenes across those books, but there's, but where I'll describe a lunge in terms of how it begins in the back foot, and how the energy is traveling up the calf and and up the leg and through the thigh and into the torso, and then along the shoulder and the arm and all this into this t- turn it transforming the character from a human being into this sort of perfect line, you know, until the the tip of the sword, you know, breaks through the other person's flesh. Um, and that is something that you can do in a fight scene is, is play with the speed of time elapsing. Um, because that, that keeps it from all being, you know, a kind of a ratatata, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of event. Um, and again, uh, you know, one of the beauties of that, uh, of that Princess Bride fight is is actually if you watch how tempo works in that, and there it's mostly done through the notion of, of you know staccato moments, and you know the only good reason for a cora core ever <laughs> is to give the characters time to deliver a line of dialogue.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, actually, as as a medieval martial artist, I would say no. The reason you do a cora cor is because you're going to break their arm and throw them on the back of their head.
1: <laughs> but, come, yeah, fair not, 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 not in a rapier fight certainly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> throwing a little armazare in there. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but no, no um,
0: bang on. Okay, so all right, now I do have to ask because I've I've read your whole Spell Slinger series, and I was astonished. I read I got the first one I think off Amazon, and I got the rest from my local bookshop. And I went up, when I went looking for them, they were in the young adult section, and I I hadn't twigged that they were supposed to be young adult because they they suited me just fine. Um, maybe I have a, I don't know, a childish outlook on life, but I, um, I'm almost, I've almost finished the latest one, Way of the Argosy. And am I pronouncing that correctly? Yep. Oh, fantastic. Um, okay. So, but the main, the main character in the Spell Singer series is this kid who is a mage, but his only working spell is basically, it's a quick draw move. Right. He literally has to take take magic powders out of his pockets and flick them in the air and go pow. Yes. Right?
1: What the hell? What the hell? So <laughs> when I was writing. Um, so so YA, by the way, doesn't mean uh, doesn't need to mean um, simpler prose or or less uh, dramatic uh, mo- moments or things like that. Sometimes it does because one of the problems with the young, young adult market right now is that it's often read by 30-year-olds. And, you know, I love 30-year-olds. I liked being one. Um, but sometimes there's this tendency to go, I just want something that feels safe. And so I'm going to impose the notion of wanting to feel safe on teenagers who don't really want to feel safe when they're reading. They want to read things that are that reflect the the fears and concerns and aspirations that they have. Right. Um, And in fact, if you think back to high school, uh, most of us were more sophisticated readers in high school than we are after leaving high school. Um, Right. We had to, we had to contend with very difficult, you know, we had to contend with Dickens and, and Shakespeare and, uh, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and material and, and now hopefully a more diverse material and, you know, that, uh, rather than just, you know, the, the classic, uh, the wonderful, uh, old white dude stories. Um, but hopefully there's sort of, you know, more diverse stuff there now, but, um, but we were sophisticated readers then. Um, and, and often when we leave, uh, you know, men, especially after men leave college, they mostly stop reading, uh, men over 40 tend to almost exclusively read nonfiction because it gets just very difficult. You know, try, try picking up uh, a Salman Rushdie book, um, you know, mm-hmm. my wife reads very sophisticated material and I'll, I'll sit there and try and read it. And I'll be like, oh, my God, like I, I would need to work at this. Um, I don't yeah. want to work. <laughs> I don't want to work at anything. Um, so so there's no reason for YA to be less uh, sophisticated. It's that it's mostly dealing with first experiences. Um, and so uh, in the case of Spellslinger and with Kellen, I wanted to write something that reflected um, what it felt like to me when I was 16, which was uh, which was the opposite of what Harry Potter experiences. <laughs> Harry Potter goes from I live in this terrible mundane world and everything's drab and boring, and my the, my guardians, you know, my aunt and uncle don't really care about me that much, and I'm poor and I live under the closet. Nobody thinks I'm important, and go and then discovers, you know, the, with the, with Hagrid's classic line, "You're a wizard, Harry." um you know oh you've actually got this secret power but not only that you're like the most talented of all of them and actually it turns out that you have this amazing destiny ahead of you but not only that it turns out that your parents actually loved you more than all other parents um and oh by the way you all and you're rich which is always my favorite one (laughs) it's always and you're rich i remember i think when i saw the uh percy jackson movie it was the same same sequence you seem like you're boring turns out you're really important turns out you've got this destiny turns out your parents really love you turns out uh you you're super rich um uh, alas none of those things happened to me at 16 i had the opposite experience um which was of um you know being inside my high school in front of my locker before first period and watching people uh watching all these people stream into the hallway and thinking I'm not the smartest person in my school. I'm not the strongest person. I'm certainly not the best looking person. I'm not the most talented. I'm not the most interesting. I don't even have, I'm not even the nicest. Like I don't even have the best personality. Even my personality is bland compared to some of these people. And um, and I remember talking to my family about it. And, you know, when you talk to your family about not feeling special, their first reaction is to say to you, you know, don't be silly. Of course you're special. You're the most special boy in the whole world. Uh, mine, which, however which is true um, to them.
0: Speaking as a which parent, is true it is true to them. Well, you
1: would you would think it was true to them. In my case, um, they sort of looked at me and thoughtfully, after I made the statement that I don't think I'm special, and then said, yeah, I guess you're right. You're not that special. Uh, oh, so fuck. what are you going to... Um, okay. <laughs> but then blessedly offered the most important question uh, any teenager can be asked upon such a statement, which was, so what do you want to do about it? Ah. And that to me was, that's been kind of a crucial element in, in my entire life is, you know, so what do you want to do about it? Um, mm-hmm. and, it and in high school, you know, everybody goes through this experience and some people, um, some people decide that, uh, you know what, nobody's special, we're all crap. You know, they kind of go into that sort of yeah, cynical phase, cynically. And then some people some people just kind of retreat often into fantasy novels and just wait for the day that it will happen for them. You know, keep waiting for someone to tell them they're special. Um, but I tried to figure out how to, you know, what, what to do. And it's taken me a lifetime, but eventually I found enough interesting things about myself to sort of develop. And that's what happens to Kellen. Kellen is, comes from a society where magic is everything, um, where it's a wondrous place to live. His parents are renowned mages. His younger sister is the most talented mage of their generation, and he's coming up to his mages trials. And his and his magic fades, starts to fade away. And all he's left with, he's this he's this kid who always wanted to be the best mage. So his um, magic in the Gentep world, uh, which is the 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 country where Kellen lives. Um, his people are the gen tap it's built on all of these very scientific elements of you know the movements of your precise somatic gestures with your hands and precise articulation of key words along with this esoteric geometry you have to form these images in your head just perfectly and he's good at every single part of magic he's Almost the best at every part of magic Except the actual magic part <laughs> And so yeah. all he has The, uh, the only uh, Of the six fundamental forms of magic That they're trained in The only one he manages to spark As they call it is breath magic Which is considered the weakest of all And breath magic is about channeling things um, And so eventually he figures out Well if I take these exploding powders And I throw them in the air So that the moment of explosion I then use this channeling The spell, I can actually amplify that explosion and direct it. Um, And so he becomes, you know, sort of, that's hence spell slinger. He becomes a bit of a gun slinger with that. Uh, And I decided when I was forming, when I was deciding on the somatic shapes that would be inherent in that, that it would be, yeah, uh, index and middle finger aimed forward to to sort of channel the direction, Um, middle, uh, sorry, uh, uh, ring and, and little finger pressed into the palm for restraint. And the thumb aimed upwards as a prayer to the ancestors to, to <laughs> not blow your hands off, and so that sort of became the finger guns uh, gag. Um, he does actually have another couple of spells that he sometimes manages to work. There's one that's a f- sort of a fire fan kind of spell, but but mm-hmm. um, but that's his big one. He's he's uh, the Carath the spell is the one that he sort of survives on a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. I- and it's, it's basically Wild West. The it is. It, there's a lot yeah. of sort of stranger comes to town, stuff kicks off because the stranger has come to town, and is yeah the other thing. Literally every single time you put your character, who we have come to like, into the worst possible situation, it gets worse for a while. Then it pauses for a moment, and then suddenly it gets catastrophically worse.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> like. that's what it feels like to be a teenager, man. That's just, that's, that's what it's like. Um, teenagers, teenagers to me are in some ways the most interesting of humans, because before you're a teenager, you think the world is basically a fair place, right? Good things happen. The good people, bad things happen. The bad people, parents are trying to love you. They're a bit clueless, but, but they're basically good. um, you become a teenager and you discover that the world is unfair and you rebel against the unfairness in various ways. Later, um, as we become older, we we sort of cynically accept that the world is unfair. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you don't we, you don't see a lot of 40 year olds shouting the world is un- completely unfair everything about this is unfair right because we just sort of cynically go oh well that's just how it is you know and and because it's an excuse not to do anything about it but teenagers actually rebel against the unfairness of the world and that's what makes them interesting to me um and so kellen has to experience all of that unfairness uh (laughs) to its maximum degree um but uh but he is a fun character uh to write um i just uh, my my you know look Uh, for anyone trying to write a novel here, novels are built around drama and drama is about characters in conflict. Uh, The simplest way I can think of to create conflict is just make everything bad for your character (laughs) as often as possible. And then ask yourself how you would get out of that. Even down to, um, I used to, you know, when I used to love reading um, fantasy novels about the young mage and they get a familiar and the familiar is like this animal companion who psychically speaks to them, who, who would do anything for them and loves them more than anything in the world. And I was mm-hmm. like, that doesn't reflect my experience with animals at all. <laughs> they mostly view me as a kind of a lazy servant who's not very good at his job. And so with Kellen, you have I cows, gave him- obviously. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, with Kellen, instead of a familiar, I gave him a, a, a business partner who's a murderous, thieving squirrel cat, who's basically constantly robbing Kellen most of the time. <laughs> but their but their friendship has to be earned it's not given to them and i think that's the essence of that series for me it's about going through life and having to earn all of those things that make you special rather than being born with them
0: but actually, that is that is the one thing i really hate about star wars you're either born a yeah. skywalker or you're not you either have oh. the force within you or you don't and that that just flies against absolutely everything i believe in and you know yeah when i'm training my students like some of the best students i've ever had i you know after the you know during the first year of their training i'm amazed they don't quit because they so roundly suck at it yes. but then but then eventually they pick it up and then they become really good and it's just you know they they didn't find the early bits easy and the later bits hard they found the early bits hard and the later bits easier you know it's it's,
1: it's oh, absolutely that's tough. and that's 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 my experience. I I used to say that my one of my few talents in life uh, is I'm I'm really good at being bad at things, um, so which means I skill. can take something up and I can be super bad at it and not mind. Um, right. And 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 I was and to me like that's one of the one of the the hidden sort of superpowers that people can give themselves. If you can be the person who doesn't get discouraged by being bad at something, then you have an infinitely better chance. Than most other people at becoming great at it, or at least becoming good enough at it that you get out of it what you want. Right, right. It's it's the people who go. It's it's the people who go look at the the, the next person on the piano who started at the same time as them, and that person's playing the piano really well, and they go, "Oh well, clearly I'm not meant for this," and give it up. Those are the people All that right. really tend to lose out. Um, so yeah, it's a but but the Jedi is an interesting. Um, Parallel as well, because the, the the Jedi was uh, one of the things I was kind of rebelling against myself um, when I was writing the Argosi. Because my I have two problems with the Jedi. The, the first is this notion of being born with it, which yeah. is sort of when I, I when I see that. all these people, yeah, I see all these people, you know, who, you know, they they take Jedi classes and things in New York <laughs> right. or a place like that, or they used to anyway, and I'd be like you know, you probably wouldn't be treated as one. You, you know, for this sort of fascination you have is with a group that probably wouldn't want to include you. But that's the same for almost everybody
0: training historical martial arts today. I'm sorry, but if you're not noble-born, what the hell are you doing yeah. here? Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that's... Yeah, we, we've moved past that,
1: we hope. Yeah, we, exactly. Um, but the second thing I, that always bugs me about the Jedi, not to, not to drift too far into that, and I, you know, I've loved Star Wars like most people, but it's the notion—it's their notion—that you have to abandon everything about your own humanity, and this was sort of George Lucas's interpretation of Japanese culture in some ways, right? It was this notion of abandon all emotion, abandon everything human. You're not allowed to sort of fall in love. You're not allowed to this and that, and and so when I was writing in the Spellsinger world, and I wanted to write about the Argosi, about this sort of order that's my equivalent to the Jedi. I wanted people that were explicitly human, that were elevating everything that is human above everything that is magical. And so there are sort of seven talents, which are things like eloquence, right? I mean, I think eloquence is this incredible human invention. The fact that we can learn to communicate on all of these different levels and that you can become good at it. Or even swagger, or you know, or or art um, ires the art of defense. This notion, you know, human bodies are so fundamentally ungainly from a from a violence perspective, right. and, and yet you'll see martial artists, Eastern and Western, do things that elevate the human body through its humanity, through the things it's it's the way that it moves into something absolutely amazing. And so that's what was the basis of the argosy for me was. Trying to construct um, a kind of an order uh, of these wandering, gambling philosophers, where everything was based on being as human as you possibly can. So I'd never thought of it like that. That's really, yeah. really interesting. Wow. Okay. I think that's why I get so many. I get I get tons of of letters from readers who say, I want to know, you know, t- tell me how to become an Argosy. It's right. the first time I've seen a philosophy that I think I could, uh, you know, follow. I could get behind.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. I was, you know, and again, I'm, I'm near, near at the end of the way of the Argosy. And there's this brilliant picture in it, which has the seven arts of the mm-hmm. Argosy. And it's like this, this back of a playing card style picture, right? And i must say, your artist is
1: superb. Whoever oh, does yeah. that halfway is—they <laughs> really know their that's, job. That's Sally Taylor who does the interiors, right? Uh, Fantastic for, for that for the series now. Yeah, she is she is amazing, and she puts incredible amounts of of work into it because those cards, especially in Way of the Argosy, um, for for those for those who haven't seen it, the. The interior art. Um, we use cards as the act breaks in mm-hmm. in the Spellslinger books and in the Argosi books, and they're always cards from a different deck. And in this deck, they're what are called path cards, which are these training cards that the Argosi use with their with their students to sort of show um, how a path, when pursued too far, can become its opposite. Right. So the path of a knight is a is a wonderful path, you know, to want to protect people and to be physically capable and all of these things. But when you pursue it too too rigidly, you tend to become the conqueror. And so mm-hmm. she had to kind of design all these elements into these cards that look kind of like tarot cards, except that they have their own reverse built into them. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the artwork. But sorry, you were talking about the Ar- the Argosy card, which is the, Wait, the last yeah. one in the book.
0: When I saw it, I had this immediate kind of my, my brain makes these weird connections. Um, have you come across a book called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Goldworthy or Timothy Galway.
1: I've sorry. heard the title
0: but not okay. come across the Right. Back. It's absolutely genius and I don't care about tennis at all, but it's one of the most important pedagogical books I've ever read and it completely changed the way I teach swordsmanship. Right? Hmm. But he said that, you know, I the edition I've got is like twenty was published like twenty years after the first edition. And he mentions in his sort of, you know, forward to this edition that people would like show up at his house and offer to, like, sweep his tennis court um, if he would just teach them the way, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm just a tennis coach, right? I'll teach you how to play tennis if, you know, here are my rates, but I don't do that, you know, that mentoring kind of spiritual guide stuff. And when I saw that picture of the way of the Al-Gayashi, I thought, I bet you anything you like. Sebastian has people showing up at his house if they can find the address or emailing him online, which is the modern equivalent, saying, yeah. teach me the way of the Argosy. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I, I get a, I get a lot of that. And I think it's because um, I think it's because we live in a, the world that we live in now. Um, I mean, then this gets a little bit strange in econo- and it and starts to delve into economics. But, you know, we live in a world where almost no one will have the same career. Uh, yeah. across their working life, where in fact, most stages of our career, we won't have one job, we'll have several jobs, you know, we're, we're moving towards a sort of a gig economy. Um, and yet, we still live with this notion of your identity being defined by your vocation. And it should be a single word, right? It should be, right. I am, a, you know, a lawyer, Um, most lawyers aren't lawyers across their whole lives anymore. Right. And, and, and those kinds of jobs are tending to disappear. Um, and so it's very, you know, a lot of the sort of the philosophical precepts around identity that we have are around this notion of a perpetually stable identity as well. Mm. Um, which we also know is not true just from, from, um, well, I won't delve into science because I'm not qualified, but, but, it, but it's, it's highly unlikely that we have a single, stable identity. And so, in, in a way, the world that we find ourselves in in the 21st century, and especially the world that, a, let's say, a 16-year-old finds themselves in, is one in which a lot of our talk around career and identity and purpose is very sort of singular. Yeah. But there's almost no opportunities for that. And I, I was kind of lucky because when I, was, when I was 16, I was off camping by myself on an island uh, near British, in British Columbia. And um, I was waiting for a ferry and I got there four hours uh, in the wrong direction either way. So I had a four-hour wait ahead of me. And I picked up this book by an Australian author named Keith Taylor. And the book was called Bard. And Keith Taylor is a wonderful author. And, uh, and, I, and I love this book. It's, you know, because it was about this this daring guy who was uh, traveling. So he traveled all over and he sang songs and played music and wrote stories and went on adventures and fought with swords. And I was like, that's it. That's the life for me. That's what I want. I want to be a bard. Um, so after consulting the Help Wanted section of my local newspaper, I discovered there were precious few such job titles. There is no... There is no um, university major that you can take in being a bard who swings a sword and does all these things. There, there is no such path available, and so uh, I spent I've spent most of my life sort of flipping around from various things. And it, what I ended up doing was I, you know, became uh, I became a touring musician for a while, and I and I started traveling a lot, and I picked up fencing, and then sword choreography, and then writing songs, and then writing novels. And so I kind of had to construct this, this vocation um, from bits and pieces, which is what I think all of us has to do. And so the Argosy is partly a reflection of that, right? Every Argosy mm-hmm. chooses a path name. Um, Farius Parfax is the path of the wild daisy. And it's a completely winding path, and it's only your path. Uh, and it's not meant to be this fixed thing. The fixed part is, the, is your pursuit, not where, you know, not where you land or what you end up with. Right. Um, and so I think that that's why I get so many people writing to me going, I want to be an Argosy, tell me how to be an Argosy. Because I think there, people are kind of hungry for a, a kind of a way to have a sense of purpose and mission for themselves that isn't dependent on, um, on a singular career outcome or a singular talent right. or any of those things. So yeah, that's that's the Argosian. and that's what I kind of love about them, and you know, so that's why I wrote way of the Argosy because in part people keep asking me the question, and I was sort of like, <laughs> yeah, oh, I wonder how how do you become an Argosian? and what does it? Mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I,
0: I have a suspicion that there's going to be an awful lot of people using it as an instructional manual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they won't have to go through the things Ferius goes through. No, and again, you do horrible things to to good people in your books, and it's. I guess, I guess it's something you have to do to, to get the drama there, but it's like, hey, Sebastian, you're a Satanist.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because you don't have to do it that way. Uh, I'm reading a terrific book. I don't know if you know, uh, 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 for those who know Miles Cameron, uh, also known yeah, Christian Cameron, um, who's a historical uh, a writer but also a fantasy writer, and I'm reading mm-hmm. his first um, science fiction book. Uh, called Artifact Space, and it's absolutely wonderful. And one of the things I adore sure. about it is that his main character, uh, uh, Marka, gets into trouble and then gets out of trouble uh, through her skills. It's very Horatio Hornblower in that sense. Right, right, right okay. Um, so, and I, and I'm reading this book, and I'm going, I'm loving this book. It's such a great science fiction book. Um, and and I'm going, uh, God, I got to learn to do what what he does. Where you don't have to just constantly pile on and make things worse and worse <laughs> until the very end. So yeah, so I'm I, I will learn from 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 him, and then I'll I'll be less cruel to my characters.
0: There there are many worse people you could learn from. <laughs>
1: indeed, but, uh, wonderful. Well,
0: Sebastian, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's been a delight. I do have one more question for you, um, if you have the time,
1: which I absolutely is. Do.
0: What is the best idea
1: you've never acted on?
0: What is the best
1: idea I've never acted on? Um, yeah, I always, I think I secretly, well, I'm going to say, I'm actually going to say archaeology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I, because I, I, uh, because I have a degree in archaeology uh, and then went on my first dig hated it so much that four hours later, I basically quit for, for life and never gave it the, the chance that it kind of deserved. Um, I basically went off and became a rock musician, which is, (laughs) you know, probably not as uncommon a tale of archeology span as one would think. But, um, but I think that that, that's, you know, the, the, it's never so much a, here's an idea. I'm not even going to try it. Mm -hmm. It's the ideas we don't, give enough time to as as I'm sure you sometimes see with with sort students of sword play, where they sort of try it but they just don't give it enough time. You know, they hit mm. their first plateau and then they're sort of like, oh I guess that's it. And it's and and so um with archaeology, I should have really given it, you know, at least eight hours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. that's, that's an interesting I'm very glad you didn't become an archaeologist because you probably wouldn't have gotten around to writing all those books.
1: No, and I would have had back problems and I would have gotten, you know, too many sunburns. And Archaeology is basically camping, but harder.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we were talking about coats earlier. You can see the coat hanging on the door at the...
1: Mm-hmm. behind me, right?
0: That is made from the factory owned by Peter Botwright. Who made the Indiana Jones jackets? And that is, that is the same jacket from the same factory as the Indiana Jones jacket. So, in my head, every archaeologist—and of course, there are actually bullwhips hanging up on the door behind it—every archaeologist is Indiana Jones. And I think where archaeologists go wrong is they don't put in enough bullwhip practice.
1: Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I uh, when I when I went to university and I was was taking my archaeology courses i asked when the bullwhip seminar would be uh and when we would do um competitive fedora wearing and um when i found out it wasn't there i I, you know i was ready to sue for my tuition back but i I think you'd have had a case yeah
0: (laughs) well thank you so much for joining me today sebastian it's been a delight getting to
1: know you thanks so much i've enjoyed it a lot
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sebastian. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. A shout out this week to new patron Roland Varchika, who I actually interviewed in episode eight. So he's something of an old hand at The Sword Guy Show. So thanks for joining us, Roland. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash The Sword Guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Dory Koblenz, who is a lecturer in technical communications at Georgia Tech but she also specialises in early modern English drama, digital pedagogy, and the history of fencing. Because yes, she is a swordsmanship instructor uh, and has some very, very interesting insights into pedagogy. So, you don't want to miss that. So make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you have a minute, please do rate it or even review it. And of course, the absolute best thing you could do is... Email a link to the show to someone who you think might enjoy it. There's nothing that beats personal
1: recommendations. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.